Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Last year, I began a series called The Armor of God. Uh, do, do any of you remember that? Yeah, you remember the points, right? You remember exactly which uh, the messages were. We're continuing in the series, and if uh, Pastor Chris won't allow me, this is, this is how I'm going to put pressure on him. If he won't allow me to finish it uh, now in summer, then I'm going to finish it next summer, which means then I will officially have the record for the longest series here at... <laughs> And you know how Chris is, Pastor Chris is, he's all about, um, you know, goals and being the best and the most and the, and the highest and the greatest. And uh, so this would mean I would top him and he certainly won't allow that to happen. So um, uh, if you will tell him that, he will probably let me finish. All right, last uh, year, this time, uh, message number one, we were talking about the armor of God found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 18. We'll get to that in just a moment. In message number one, we talked about the devil and, uh, and evil. And we said, you, uh, just to summarize, you can't, fix with ed- uh, you can't fix what's happening in the world today with education, legislation, and social programs. If you could have, it would have already been done. Things are getting worse, not better. We answered why God doesn't just eradicate evil now. We offered six things that God has done, is doing, and will do about evil. And the good news is that in the meantime, for us believers, God has not allowed us, uh, left us defenseless. Amen? He's given us three things for the fight, his strength, his armor, and weapons. And remember what we said last year? I, I teased with you a little bit, but uh, it was serious at the same time. You can't just pray the, the, we- the, the, uh, the ar- piece of the armor on like this, uh, you know, in the morning. Get up and say, dear God, uh, now uh, I'm, uh, uh, I'm choosing to put on my armor. And I'm putting right now, I'm putting uh, the uh, armor, uh, I'm, I'm putting on the belt of truth, and right now I'm putting on the breastplate of righteousness, and then I'm going to put on, I'm going to make my feet uh, fit or shod with the gospel readiness of the gospel of peace, and I uh, put on the helmet of salvation, and I take up my sword of the Spirit. Dear God, I'm, I'm armored and ready for the fight today. That's magic. That's not what Paul was talking about. Paul is using metaphor so that they could remember the truth. Remember, they had to memorize Scripture. They didn't have it in a written form, everybody. And so he used a metaphor. He just took a Roman soldier and looked at his thing and said, okay, this, uh, this truth is for this, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll make this truth for this, and this truth for this piece, and this truth for this piece, and this truth for this piece. And those are the kinds of truths that you need if you're going to defend yourself against the attacks of the enemy, all right? So it's not, it's not just about putting some human kind of thing on. No, no, there's, there's, there's a spiritual truth behind each one of those pieces of armor. We have to know what, we have to uncover what that spiritual truth that he was, that he was trying to picture and then live that truth. And that's what gives us the defense against the attacks of the enemy. Do you see that? Uh, So that's what we're talking about. So then, in uh, message number two, we talked about the belt of truth. And uh, it said, uh, with the belt of truth, buckle around your waist. And we said, and we found out in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, that exact same phrase is there, except that it adds 
a couple of words which tell us what the waste was referring to. Because remember, he's not actually talking about your human waste. Um, he's, he's, uh, he, he's talking about your mind. 1 Peter 1.13 says, having been girded about with your mind around the waste. Of your mind. That's what Peter said. Now we understand what he's getting. What's the spiritual truth behind it? So he's saying, you have to put on the belt of truth around your mind. You have to gird it. And that, what that means is the enemy will attack. He, he will attack you, and he does it through the collective mind of the world. He does it through direct attacks by himself, through your, the desires of his sinful nature. He will attack you and cause you to doubt and to think that the great questions of life cannot be answered by Christianity. Like, is there a God? Or, if there is a God, who, which is the right one? How can I know that? Or, is the Bible reliable? And those kinds of things. Those are the things that we discussed and demonstrated very clearly in that message the correct answers to that. Now, if we don't put that uh, around our minds, we're going to lose, for example, we're going to lose our kids. Because the enemy is going to attack them with doubt in the, in the educational systems, in the media, in, er in everything. Uh, he's going to attack them uh, with lies and deception, and they won't be guarded around their mind with answers. Is that true? And that goes to, uh, for anybody. Here's the second one we looked at. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, there's the imputed righteousness where God uh, takes uh, the, uh, the righteousness of Jesus and he puts it on us because were we born righteous or not? <laughs> We're not righteous, are we? As it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. <laughs> Look at your spouse and say, not even you. Or maybe you're thinking, especially you. <laughs> okay, and uh, you impute the righteousness of Christ on us and takes our sins and imputes or puts them on Jesus. And then the wrath of God came against Jesus for the punishment that we deserved, right? We said that's not the righteousness he's talking about in this particular case. In this case, he's talking about something that something about the way we live. I mean, that's what happens when we get saved, but he's talking about living. He's talking about righteous or holy or godly character kind of living, righteous living. Now, if we live righteously or in holiness or growing character, then what happens is it acts as a protection against Satan's attacks. You say, well, how does that work? Well, uh, I don't have time to go through, <laughs> repeat the whole message, but I'll just give you a couple examples. Satan wishes to disfigure God's image in us. Is that true? So if we're unholy, the image of God is disfigured, and what people are seeing is not Jesus. Is that true? So he wants to disfigure that in us. Uh, he wishes to divide us. Show me a church where they have lots of division and lots of bickering and lots of fighting, and I'll show you a church that is unholy and unrighteous and not walking in godly character, growing in godly character. It's true. If they were living righteous and holy and that type of thing, they would not be dividing. Is that true? Yeah. Do you see how righteous living acts as a breastplate of righteousness? And yet, when I was in Spain in May, uh, I was talking to the other speaker in that one conference I was speaking in Madrid, 
And at the end of the conference, uh, I went and I thanked him for his presentation. He had done a really good job on the, on, on the opening night. He, he turned around and grabbed me by the shoulder and he said, Brother, the highlight of this conference was when you spoke three times on holiness. He said, we never hear that message in Spain. Never mind Spain. We don't hear that message anywhere. It's not being preached. And yet scripture is full of it. And it's a breath, the breastplate of righteousness. If we don't have it on, we're going to be attacked. We're attacked by the enemy. Is that true? And, um, and then uh, how, how about it? Satan then stabs the Christian conscience. How many of you have ever done something that was sinful and later it stabbed your conscience? Anybody? <laughs> Me. I got two hands up for both times. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's ten fingers. <laughs> um, uh, and when you are stabbed in your conscience, I want to ask you a question. Do you feel like getting up and serving Jesus, or do you feel so ashamed that you feel like you are not worthy and you should not serve anymore? Huh? Peter, when he denied Jesus three times, what did he do? He ran, for the, he ran for his boat, and he went back to fishing. Not because he didn't love Jesus, because he said, I'm not worthy of doing it. He was so ashamed, but Jesus came and rescued him from that shame. Did he, did he not? Okay, do you see what I'm saying? If we don't have the breastplate of righteousness on, the devil attacks us, and then he's got us. And the kingdom of Christ is not advanced. That's as far as I can go on in that particular one, or I'll preach a whole message on that. Repreach it. Now, uh, you will notice that all the pieces of the, all the pieces, people notice it. It, it's, it all appears to be defensive except for the sword of the spirit. Oh boy, I want to, I, I hope I get to preach that one because you'll hear some things you've never, you, you probably have never considered before. But because it's, def there's so much of it's defensive, Christians begin to think that the, as they look at the armor, that it's all about defense. And so we just got to hunker down and put on our defense and wait for Jesus to come and pray for his coming. Oh, dear Lord, come because I'm getting attacked. No, 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 no. That's not what the Roman uh, soldiers did. You know, they had round shields, the legionnaires, and then they, they, they changed them and they turned them into uh, elongated, they were the big rectangular and they covered the whole person. But they also made them so wide that two-thirds of the shield covered the person and one-third was for the other soldier there and so they would come in tight, in tight ranks and that way it was like a wall and they could advance. The whole point, and they called it the wedge. Um, and uh, so the whole point was as they were going to war they needed weaponry to defend themselves so that they could attack. That was the point. And the Christian church has to be on the offensive. And all Christians need to be part of the call into service. All Christians. Did you hear that? How many Christians? All. all um, are called into service for that. All right? So that's the, the point of that. Now, let's uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, because uh, we're at the point, verse 15 feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, whatever that means. So I'm going to go back and I'm just going to, 
uh, catch it up to verse 15. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, put it on so that when the day of evil comes, when Satan attacks you through all kinds of, and bad things happen to you, do bad things happen to people? They happen to everyone. If it hasn't happened to you, take heart, it's coming. Amen? And he tells us to put the armor on now so that we'll be ready for when the day of evil comes and Satan inflames it and uses it. So he says, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and it will surely come, you may be able to take your stand and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then, verse 14, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's verse 15. 16, well, next week or the week after, we'll talk about it. In addition to this, take a shield of faith which to quench all the fiery arrows of the evil one. Oh boy, that's a power. That, there's stuff we got to know there. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then he goes on into the prayer stuff in verse 18 and 19. Okay? So verse 15. Uh, the readiness, feet fitted or shod with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's not referring here to evangelism. Some people think because it says gospel of peace, and it does say you and Gilliam, uh, but just because it says that, that's not what he's talking about. Um, he, th that's a wonderful theme. It's a wonderful theme. He's assuming the advancement of the kingdom and evangelism and all that goes with advancing the kingdom of Christ. He's assuming that and he's saying, as you're going, you're going to need armor or you're going to get taken out because when you fight and rob Satan's stronghold, you know, it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, it says, if you want to rob a strong man's house, you've got to first tie up the strong man before you can carry off his possessions. You know what the context of that is saying? Who's the strong man? The devil. In the context, if you go back to verse uh, Matthew 12, 29, that's what he's talking about. And he's saying, uh, and he says, you've got to tie him up before you can take his possessions. Well, what are the possessions we're trying to take from the devil? Exactly. Human souls. That's what he, he's hanging on. So if you're going to try to free some people from his clutches and you're going to try to take them away, he will fight you. You just got a bullseye on you. And that's what Paul's getting at. He said, we're, we're, we're already in a fight, we're marching, but as you're doing that, you better have armor on or you're going to get taken out. Because he's coming against you in a big way. Some people have said to me over the years, they've said, you know, as soon as I ser started serving Jesus, I, we, we ran into all kinds of problems. Of course you did. What did you expect? <laughs> He's going to try to protect what he has. Amen? So that's the way it works. So it's not referring to the peace with God. In Romans chapter 5, 10, he says, For if when you were enemies of God, you were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And then he says in verse 1, he, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by peace or by faith, we have peace with God. He's not talking about peace with God here. 
that, 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 uh, uh, that's not the context here, because he talks about us being enemies of God. In this context, he's, he's not talking about God being the enemy. And by the way, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God. You're not sitting on the fence. You are either an enemy of God or you are a child of God. It's one or the other. And it's a, it's a, a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't want to be an enemy of God. I'll give you a chance to be a child of God at the end of the message, okay? And so he's not talking here about God being our enemy. He's talking about the devil being our enemy. So it can't be that peace. So when we read uh, feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, we're not talking about evangelism in this particular case. That's assumed. And we're not talking about peace with God. There's a different kind of peace that Paul also talks about. And... Um, uh, because uh, there are many benefits and blessings that flow out of the gospel of, of, of Christ and of salvation. You know, unity and harmony and joy and peace, love and unity and uh, the Spirit who is the deposit, of, uh, you know, is, is a deposit guaranteeing our, our inheritance until the redemption of God's possession. You know, that, I mean, there's so much, so many blessings flow out of it that's what he's getting at. And one of them is peace. But not peace with God. It is, and we'll see it now in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Many of you are familiar with this, and so you can read it with me. But it says, do not... Uh, go ahead. Let's read it together. Here, here we go. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace of God. There it is. And notice that it guards. Did you see that? It, it will guard your hearts and your minds. Oh, that's the same as the Ephesians passage. It's armor. It guards. If you have this kind of peace, it guards against something. It guards your hearts and minds. What does it Guard your heart and mind from. Against what? Anxieties. Do you see that? Do not be what? Anxious. When you have peace, are you anxious? No. When you're anxious and when you are worried and when you're fearful, you don't have peace in your heart. There's agitation and there's frustration and you're worried and you can't, you're not settled down. When you have the peace of God guarding it, guarding your heart and mind, it will keep you, it's guarding it, your heart and mind from anxiety and worry. Jesus said, do not worry about this life, what you shall eat or drink, what you shall wear, and all that, right? Here Paul is saying the exact same thing. Um, and there's all kinds of things. Uh, what kind? Uh, notice the word anything. <laughs> Do not be anxious about what? Anything. Like, what? Anything. Anything. Like what? Well, People have all kinds of anxieties and fears. There's fears of political instability and uncertainties. And there's, boy, if you want to watch the news, that'll make you anxious. Um, fear of what will happen to Christians and church, uh, churches. I watch that all the time, what's happening around the world. 
Some wonder what's going to happen to the church. There's fear, fear of health, of aging, of dying. There's a fear of climate change. Is climate, cha climate change real? Of course it is. <laughs> Just walk outside. This smoke all came from BC. We were there. They had 1,800 uh, fires this fire season. That was when we left. Last year, same time, that was a record, 1,000. There's 560 burning when we left. And the smoke you're getting here, that's from, from there. Uh, we were in Spain and, and those places in May. This year, 46 degrees. But I want to say something to you about that. People are talking about climate change. It is not answering the question why. It answers the question how. You say, you're confusing me. People say it's answering the question of why we're in trouble. No, 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 no. It's answering the question how we're in trouble. We're in trouble because, the why is because we've turned our backs on God. That's why we're in trouble. And the how we're feeling it is with climate change. Do you see that? Because he sustains, Hebrews chapter 1-3 says, he sustains everything by his powerful word. This, this world doesn't just exist all by itself and he just kind of spun the top and now he sits back and smokes a pipe. No. It says that he is sustaining all things with his powerful word and when he starts to back off, we're all in trouble. Is that true? But by the way, when you, if you're witnessing to somebody, did you know there's an entire book in this, in this Bible, <laughs> it's, at least it's in mine, um, that's dedicated to environmental crises? There's an entire book. It's the book of Revelation. Uh, God told us a long time ago that the world would eventually face tremendous environmental crises. Go read it. And man's just catching up to the Bible. <laughs> a little late in some cases. Well, it's not too late. They can turn to God. Is that true? Absolutely. Anyway, that's, uh, that's just a little pet project there. They, I, that was for free. You didn't have to give for that. Worry, anxiety about your children. Will they follow God? Anxiety about past failures and measuring up to expectations. And the uh, devil inflames uh, these anxieties and these worries and these fears. If, if there's any anxiety and worry and fear in our lives, then he comes and he inflames them. And the whole point is to do three things. Remember how we talked about the belt of truth and what it can do and, and, and what the, uh, uh, if you don't have it. And uh, same thing with righteousness, if you don't have it, what it can do. Well, now I'm going to tell you what happens if you don't have your feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and you don't have peace ruling in your heart, then he inflames that and the whole point is to do three things. Number one, to make you quit. That's the first one. Um, uh, you move into self-preservation mode. You, you're kept from persevering. You quit doing the things that God called you to do. In Matthew, Jesus said, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. Do you see it? Right there. Stopped. He wants to, 
isn't it true sometimes when you are really worried and really fearful and really anxious about something, you just want to quit? Have you ever felt, have you felt it? I did, within two years of starting here at Southland. What was for us a perfect storm, you know, kids away from the Lord, finances and friends, uh, ten surgeries that piled up for over a few years. It was kind of, everything just came crushing at the exact same time and I just wanted, enough is enough already. I just wanted to stop. No, we didn't. But do you feel it? Yeah. And many people quit. I see them quit church. I see them quit their ministries. Oh, we just got to take some time off. You know, we got some problems here. No, that's when you need to step into the fight. And you got to get peace in your heart and tell the devil to scram and you need to step up. Is that true? It's true, church. Here's the second thing it's designed to do. Not just make you quit. It's designed to make you take control. Sometimes we feel the opposite. We say, things are getting out of control. I'm just got to control the situation. I'm going to control people. I'm going to control circumstances. Have you ever felt like that? I'm just going to take control of situations. And then we damage relationships and we damage all kinds of things and do all kinds of and Satan wins again. There's a third thing that it's designed to do. Our fears and our anxieties and worries and why we have to have our feet shot with gospel peace is it preoccupies us with those things and we quit doing the things that God has called us to do because we're so occupied with that. You see? And Jesus talked about that too. He said, be careful of your hearts or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the what? Anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. And so instead of accomplishing what God intended for people to do in their lifetime, because they face some hardship, they quit doing it, and suddenly they're 65, because I'm only 64, and they're 60, all of us, they turn 65, and they have not accomplished anything. I, uh, <laughs> One of my good friends, Len Neufeld, in our board chair here for many, many years, he would often say, he has said it to me so many times, and I really like it. He, he said, if, if you're still having to say of somebody when they're 60 years old, that person has a lot of potential, that's too late. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what this is getting at. By then, they should be realizing their potential, amen, and not taken out of the game. Anyway. Let's move on. So how do you, you, do you want to put on uh, feet of readiness from the gospel of peace? How many of you want to do it? I'll show you how. The first thing you have to do is learn God's redemptive purposes in your trial. Many people rightly believe that God loves and cares for them. What they don't necessarily understand, however, is that God's love doesn't look like what they think it should. Amen? <laughs> Um, it, it's like, uh, you know, when you say to your two-year-old, no, you can't have uh, candy for breakfast. You know what I mean? And, and the child cries, they don't love me. Uh, actually, the parent really loves them. And the reason I use this as an illustration is because I gave two sets of kids today jujubes for breakfast. And uh, <laughs> so that wasn't very loving, was it? Now, I've discovered... Uh, in the scriptures, and there, and there could be more, but so far I've discovered 13 
13 reasons in Scripture why God allows believers to suffer and go through trials. Believers. We're not talking about evil in the world today. That's another topic. I'm talking about believers. Why he allows suffering and trials. And I've just put, I've, I've put eight up very quickly. And you can, you can take a picture of it or do, do whatever. But anyway, to grow our perseverance, James 1. To grow our character, Romans 5, 4. To prepare us for ministry tasks. To reveal what's hidden in our hearts. You know, Jonah in chapter 4 with the good growing up. Uh, let's go to the next one. Uh, to cause us to repent. To bring more glory uh, to himself. To prepare us for heaven. Oh my, I almost ended up preaching that this weekend. I was about three quarters of the way through on Friday, getting ready for that one. I'm saving it. Uh, that is phenomenal because you ever ask, like, have you ever, have you ever heard somebody uh, say this before? This earth is a preparation for eternity. Have you, have you ever heard that? And have you ever wondered what on earth they meant by it? Because they usually don't explain it. Um, I want to I talk about that. This earth is a preparation for eternity. And I want to talk about that. But anyway, uh, to reveal Christ to those who are blinded by Satan. And then I've got about another five or so. But let's just take this last one for example. Why does God allow the believer to suffer? So when you're going through a trial and you're fearing this and you're anxious about this and you're worried about this, why does he allow this? This is one of the reasons why he allows it. And I'm just going to expand on this one as an example, but I think there's also an application here that is necessary for the church that I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. This is what it says. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Have you experienced that that is the truth? Yes or no? <laughs> Is, is, the, is the world blinded to the truth of the gospel? Oh, yeah, big time. Well, guess what? God has a solution for that. And it'll blow your mind. In verse 7 and following to, uh, to 12, it says this. We have, uh, but we have these jars, or uh, the, this treasure, in jars of clay. Now, what are the jars of clay? That's our, that's our bodies. We are the jars of clay. We're the, we're the dirt, <laughs> right? We're like crackpots. We're fragile, easily broken. And what's the treasure that's inside of us? Well, we'll find out what the treasure is, okay? Because remember, we're talking about the context here is that the, the non-believer is blinded. So we have this treasure, but we have this treasure in uh, um, jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, because we're easily cracked and broken and, and we have trials and tribulations and sickness and health issues and persecution in many countries and etc., etc. And then he says, we are hard-pressed, verse 8, hard-pressed on all sides, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in dis uh, despair. We are persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. That's verse 9. Then verse 10 he says, we always carry around in our bodies, uh-oh, here goes, here goes, we're going to find out what the treasure is, our bodies are the jars of clay, we always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus, did you hear that? So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our bodies, may also be revealed in our bodies. 
For we who are alive are always being given over to death, trials, tribulations, suffering, for Christ's sake, so that his life may, uh, may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us and life is at work in you. Uh-oh, did you see that? So much for the prosperity gospel and the preaching that we hear on television. Don't listen to it. It's false. It's a false gospel. He's saying, Paul is saying, that the minds of unbelievers have been clouded. And the way they can see Jesus is when we're broken, and in our brokenness, the life of Jesus shines through. You say, well, this just doesn't make sense. I'll illustrate this. Okay, I will. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison, and they're singing at midnight. Now, that's crazy. Think about this. They're in prison. Who knows what's going to happen to them tomorrow morning? Sometimes you'd wake up in the morning and find out you were lined up for execution, as, ha as happened to James, right? It was going to happen to Peter if the angel hadn't let him out. They're singing. Does that sound like the peace of God which passes all understanding? Are they anxious, worried, and fearful? Help me. No, they're not. They're singing. And at midnight, there's a big earthquake, the prison doors are sprung open, the shackles fall off, and it's obviously God's will to run because that's the open door. Or is it? They sit there, and the jailer wants to fall on his sword, and they say, no, 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 don't do it, we're all here. We had a business, church business meeting, and it was unanimous, we're staying in prison, we like it. Are you serious? Yes. And he comes and he falls at their knees and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because he saw something in them. Is that true? Okay. You're still not convinced. I'll try one from 1939 then. Esther Kim, and I, I'm going to tell you one later in the series that will blow your mind. But Esther Kim, 1939, during the barbaric occupation of Korea by Japan, and she was a, a school teacher in North Korea, an elder park, a Methodist spiritual leader. They've made an incredible journey from Pyongyang, Korea, to Japan, who was occupying them. And they were going to go into, it was miraculous, how do you even get out of the country and get there on ship? And they went into the Japanese diet, their version of a parliament, and they unfurled a banner from, the, uh, 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 from on top, and it listed all the atrocities that were being committed against Christians by the Japanese in Korea. And of course they were arrested and thrown into prison, mercilessly tortured, and so on and so forth. Now, you get the idea. And uh, the female jailers were cruel and merciless. They were beating and torturing, starving their prisoners. And one, on one night duty, Jailer Kane was on duty, and she stood in front of cell number one, which was occupied by Esther. And she just stared. This is that night. And finally she muttered, strange. And then she went to cells three and five, also occupied by believers, turned to Esther's cell, and again said, it's really strange. To which Esther, who was wide awake and observing this, responded, what is strange? 
The jailer responded, people's faces, not only in prison, but outside prison, their faces look so nervous and tense, children's faces even look wicked. That's why I find this cell so different. Esther asked her what she meant, and the jailer responded, I guess it's because I find the face of those in this cell peaceful. Remember what we're talking about? Anxiety, worry, fear, gone, because peace of God is pushed it out. And then she says, your face and that of the prisoner in cell three and the one in five are all peaceful. These three cells were occupied by believers, and when Esther pressed Jailer Cain again as to why their faces look different, she replied, it's almost, it almost seems as though you have the faces of angels, and I can't understand it. Nowhere else have I found peaceful faces in this world. Esther then asked her jailer if she would like to know how she could have such a peaceful uh, face in a place like that, and the jailer said she would. And with that, Esther told Jailer Cain about Jesus, and the jailer was converted. Amen? Why? Because God does allow those kinds of things. I listed eight there. there I found 13, and maybe you'll find more, and you'll tell me about it. But uh, why God allows it. But notice this. When he allows those things, uh, then, then the, the peace of God and Christ shine through the brokenness, because we're cracked pots, remember? And they can see Jesus, and suddenly they're going, this makes no sense. And, the, and what, they, what they were blinded to in their minds, they can see in reality. Now, you say, well, yeah, well, we're not in prison, and we're not persecuted. No, but now, this is where this, the rubber meets the road, right here. No, we're not in prison. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But the point is this, we all go through suffering. We all face trials. Is that true? Now, the question is, how do we face those trials, and how do we face the troubles and the suffering when we do? Do we then get grumpy and upset and anxious and worried, and do we act just like the world does? Or, through our cracked pots of trials and suffering, do we demonstrate a peace that passes all understanding that everybody in our family and in the church and in the community and around us, the unsaved and the saved alike, go, it must be Jesus. Because I don't know how you would act like that without him. Do you see what I'm saying? There's many of your kids you will never reach if when you're going through the trials, in fact, you'll lose them. If when you're going through trials and tough times, if you don't, if they can't see Jesus in that. Is that true? It's as true of us as it is of them. It's really necessary. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Understanding God's purposes in what is happening can give us peace. So we need to learn God's purposes in our trials, but we need to learn it now. You say, well, I'm not going through a trial, so I'll, I'll wait till... No, 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 put it on now. Write these things down. Start journaling. Start learning these now and start applying them now. And if you're in the midst of a trial, do the same. Philippians 4 uh, so how do we uh, learn God's purposes in our own trials? Like, w which of the 13 is it? Do you know that you can ask God? 
And let's go back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. This is what it said. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by what? Prayer and petition with? Let your requests be made known to God. Petition and requests. What does that have to do with peace? Well, one of them is you could be asking for peace. The other one is you could be asking what the purpose is for the trial and the suffering that you're going through. Now, I'm not saying he will always tell you. No, no. Sometimes he won't tell you till after the fact. Um, because maybe he's trying to grow your trust in him and not in yourself. Do you see what I'm saying? In which case, he can't tell you that. <laughs> Just like he couldn't tell Job the, uh, because, uh, why he was suffering because it was intrinsic to the test that he was going to. So to have told him would have blown the test, you know, and, and it wouldn't have been a true test. Um, but you can ask him. And, and Paul, who wrote this, is the same one who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10, he said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a what? Thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. By the way, we're going to talk about resistance, uh, resisting Satan and stuff and the sword of spirit. And what that actually means um, a messenger from Satan was given me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, prayer and petition, that he would remove it from me. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my, uh, in my weaknesses so that uh, Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, insults, and hardships, for, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He asked the Lord to remove it. And the Lord told him the purpose of it is to keep him from becoming conceited because of surpassingly great revelations. He would have become conceited and he would have lost his eternal reward. So Paul goes, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I would have lost my reward. I'm mean, glad he told me that. Do you see what I'm saying? You can know the specific ones, I mean, and God usually has multiple reasons for what he's doing, and he might just show you one or two, and when he might have six that he's fulfilling. Okay, what, you see what I'm saying? But even if you really know those 13 or 8 or something, you begin to realize, you know what, even if I'm not sure which one of those purposes for this one, I know that God is working something out for good to those who love him, which is Romans 8, 28. Amen? This isn't arbitrary. He's not a capricious God arbitrarily giving me hard times because he likes to give because he's a hard taskmaster. He's not. He cares about the line of our eternity more than the dot of our present. Amen? Keep saying that, but I will. Anyway, uh, number two. Looking at the clock here very quickly. Consider who's in the boat of your trials with you. Have you ever noticed there's two stories in the Bible that are very parallel, uh, run parallel? And one of them is a story of Jesus in the boat. You know, he's asleep and a big storm comes. Do you remember that story? The other story is the story of Jonah. And the stories parallel each other. They're very similar. Both Jesus and Jonah were in the boat. Both boats were overtaken by a storm. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep. And both the sailors woke up the sleeper and said, we're going to die. And in both there was a miracle and the sea calmed. 
And there's more parallels, but we just don't have time for it. In the midst of the storm, Jonah said to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I die, you live. Is that true? And does that have echoes of a future gospel? And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, he said, one greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a picture of Jesus, and Jesus was referring to himself. And, what, and this is what Jesus meant in thinking about Jonah. Someday I'm going to calm all storms and still all waves. I'm going to break brokenness and kill death. How? Jesus was willingly thrown into the only storm that can really sink us. God's wrathful storm of eternal justice for our wrongdoing. And that storm wasn't calmed until it swept him away at the cross. If the sight of Jesus being thrown into that storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never again say, God doesn't care. If he was willing to be thrown into the greatest storm of God's wrath poured out in eternal justice for you, then don't you think he's going to take care of you in your little tiny storms? Huh? And that should be burned into the core of our being. You say, well, how do I burn it in there? By spending meditating. Meditate on it and pray about that. Think on it. Consider it. Not as you walk out to your vehicle and turn the radio on. I mean in the morning. Spend an hour. Spend two hours pondering that and praying about that. Consider it. Get that into the core of your being. Here's the third thing. Last. Receive God's love in the midst of your suffering and trials. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about peace. Now you're talking about love. We are talking about peace. Peace is the result or the effect of love. There is no peace. The peace of God isn't there without experiencing his love. It's when you experience his love that you experience the effects of that love, which are peace. When he loves on you, there's peace sweeps into your soul. Experiential peace floods your soul. Is that true? Paul may just as well have said, with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of love. He could have said that and it would have been true. But he wanted to spe specify the effects of that love and get that. But you can't have peace without experiencing his love and knowing his love. Explanations and reasons are helpful for the mind because in part they answer the question why, but sometimes good answers just aren't good enough. When a little uh, three-year-old is crying because she got hurt and she cries out to her mommy with her hands raised like this and says, mommy, why? She's not looking for an intellectual answer with five reasons why God allowed her to fall on the floor and scrape her knee. Is that true? She just wants mommy to pick her up and hold her tight and make her know that everything's okay. Even when she says why, that's not what she wants. She doesn't want an intellectual answer. She wants to be loved and know that everything will be all right. Job didn't get any answers to his questions. In fact, God responded to him with 71 questions of his own. <laughs> Job, where were you at the foundation of the world? You're questioning me? 
But though Job didn't get any answers to his questions, see how Job responded. In Job 42.5, my ears had heard of you, but my eye, now my eyes have seen you. What satisfied Job? When he saw and experienced God's presence. And that's, it's the only answer that ultimately matters and satisfies. Go to him. He wants to give you himself and it will satisfy. It was 2002. It was a Sunday morning. I was going to be preaching here at Southland. It was our wedding anniversary on that day. I was meditating on 2 Kings chapter 4. And it's a story about the Shunammite woman. You remember the story of the Shunammite woman? She didn't have a child. And Elisha would stay there. And Elisha asked her what she would like, and she said, well, I, I would love to have a son. And he said, you will have a son by this time next year. He prayed over her, and she had a son. The son started to grow up, and then the son uh, became very sick one day, and he died. And she was distraught. And she goes to Elijah, Elisha, and she says, Elisha, why would you, you know, this was the son of promise. Why would you, like, why even bother if I'm just going to lose them anyway, I would have been better off not to have had them. And Elisha goes to prayer and raises the son to life. And as I've been reading this, the Holy Spirit suddenly flooded my soul, and he spoke to me, and he said, there's a woman in your life who's like the Shunammite woman, and it's Fran. Because she also had a son of promise. Because when Stephen was conceived, God had said to her, and we journaled it at the time, that one day God was going to raise him up and use him to reach many people and affect many people for him. And now, in 2002, he was, he was dead to us, and he was dead to the church, and he was dead to God. He was dead to everything. He wanted nothing to do with it. And uh, he, yet he was the son of promise. And he said, I want you to tell her that, her that I'm going to raise her son from the dead. And so I phoned her up. It's the only time I've done it. I'm telling you that just so you don't think I'm that good. Because I never do breakfast on a day that I'm preaching. I don't go out for breakfast somewhere. I phoned her up and I said, honey, would you like to go out for anniversary breakfast? And so we went to Smitty's and ordered the food. And I told her the story of the Shunammite woman. And, and then we wept. And the Holy Spirit just came and ministered to us and just loved on us. And he gave us a promise. And that happened two years before the son was raised back to life. And now he just finished nine years of ministry here at Southland. It's hard to believe. He's not completed, but he's completed nine years so far. This is hard to believe, right? The point is, go to him. Go to him. He wants to give you himself. He wants to give you promises. He wants to love on you. And he wants to fill your flood, your heart with peace. So that Christ's life may shine through your cracked pots. Amen? Exactly. So this is where I want to end because that's why Paul prayed this prayer for the church at Ephesus. And this is how it goes. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you through his spirit in your inner being uh, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to, to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. Did you get that? 
That's experiential knowledge. Uh, experiential love. It, it's not knowledge kind of love, knowing about it. It's experiential. It surpasses all knowledge and the peace. And, 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 uh, and that's what he says. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is my prayer for you. And that's what God has in mind for you. You know what? When we have a peace like that, we can sing with the hymnist. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Amen? Maybe you're here tonight uh, or this morning and you don't know Jesus. Remember I was talking about peace with God, peace of God? If you have not received Christ, you are an enemy of God because you have not made peace with God. You can only have peace with God by what Jesus did for you because otherwise you have to pay the penalty for your sin. So peace of God flows from that blessing. You can't have the peace of God until you have make peace with God. But here's the good news. <laughs> as many as received him, Jesus said in John chapter 1, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Ah, there it is. So I'm going to give you an opportunity if you're here this morning and... Uh, you're either a child, today, everybody listen up. You're either, this morning, you are either a child of God or you are an enemy of God. There is no gray ground in between. It's one or the other. Which is it going to be? Right now, you have an opportunity to decide. One day that opportunity to decide will be gone. And you will be either a child of God for eternity or you will be an enemy of God separated for eternity in hell. Which will it be? I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond through a prayer. If, you, if this prayer uh, is what you want, you want Jesus, then you pray this in your heart and you can become a child of God right now. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here and showing me this uh, truth clearly from your word. I choose today to be a son of God, a child of God, based on what Jesus taking the wrath of eternal justice on my behalf. He took the hit for me. And I believe that. I trust it. I receive him into my heart by faith. And I choose to follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.